Uh, talks about Jordan's family and Jordan's upbringing, where Jordan was born. He's a native of Dripping Springs, Texas, now lives in Katy, uh, where he and his family work with the uh, Katy Church of Christ. He serves there as one of the associate ministers or one of the ministers of that congregation. Um, they have three, he and Aaron have three beautiful children. Um, who you may or may not hear a little bit during the, the lesson because they're with grandparents this week, and so we're thankful for that. Jordan's a graduate of Texas State University, has a Bachelor's of Science in Wildlife Bi- Biology. He is uh, a polished speaker and was so long before he began local ministry, uh, has had a tremendous impact on young people and college students. Um, there w- weren't very many months that we lived in San Marcos before Jordan was a student, and so so it was a fixture in our lives for a number of years. We were able to work together for a little bit there in San Marcos as he served as our youth minister. He's the uh, director of the AIM Christian Youth Camp at Peach Valley. And I know we read that bio sometimes or in that line in people's bios about the work they do at church camp. And I know a lot of us as preachers do work at church camp. Um, but I have personally witnessed lives literally be changed. Um, people going to ministry. Um, find their place with Christ, know better how to serve the Lord because of Jordan and Aaron's influence at Peach Valley. Um, In fact, when we moved out here, that was Carson's stipulation that we couldn't move unless she could go back for Peach Valley every year. And so they made an impact on our children and in our lives, and we love and appreciate them. When I looked at the lineup this this week, I was as excited about Jordan being here because I didn't know until I saw it that he was coming and speaking uh, as any of our speakers. And so I'm glad that he's here, and it's my honor to introduce him now and ask him to preach the word. Word. About a year ago, my family and I moved into a new to us home in Katy, Texas, and it is on a cul-de-sac and uh, in a neighborhood that's an older neighborhood. It's, the home was built in 1980, and there's a lot of uh, larger, mature trees. and And being on that cul-de-sac, as, as opposed to maybe being on a thoroughfare, it was enjoyable because we were able to be in a place where it kind of felt a little bit more Mayberry-esque. We both grew up in the country, Aaron and I did, and so being in the the big metropolis of Houston is something that was a little bit uh, intimidating for us. And so as we thought about being in this in this cul-de-sac neighborhood and and as we thought about just being about five minutes from the church building not having to really get on to the big major thoroughfare of I-10 we were excited about where we were and and as I said it kind of had this Mayberry-esque type of vibe to it as as we enjoyed being there and there were other young families on the street and we were enjoying being able to watch our kids even because we're on a cul-de-sac go out in the front yard and play and, and enjoy playing basketball on the street with the other young families but it wasn't very long until we were quickly reminded that not everyone in our world today is raising children or raising children in godly homes. That is, it's not even just that they're not being raised in godly homes, but they're being raised in some cases in homes that are antagonistic toward God. Just a few months into our time there in this new home, one of the friends that Jackson made down the street, uh, Jackson was having a conversation about uh, going to worship soon with him and, and asked him if he worshiped God. And, and this young man, the same age as, as our six-year-old, told him that I hate God. And, well, I think maybe it's just a six-year-old saying something you know, interesting. You know, maybe he just doesn't like to go to, to Bible class or you know, maybe he's just spouting something off. But just a few months later, down the road, he, Jackson got a new Bible, and he was really excited to show his new friend his Bible and ask him, you want to see my Bible? And 
He didn't want to see his Bible. He told him no multiple times. And his older brother did as well. And as I was thinking about those things, much like Brother Owen said last night, we need to realize that gone are the days where we can safely assume that those that are our neighbors, those that are our co-workers, are at least some way tied and associated with Christianity. And then beyond that, as we, as we said, in a lot of ways, many people are antagonistic toward God. And it's not that I hadn't given much thought to to various arguments and how to defend the nature of God and God's existence. As, as Wayne mentioned, my degree is in wildlife biology, and I tell people many times that my degree is in, for all intents and purposes, is in evolution. And so through my time in school, I had to wrestle a lot with my belief in the existence of God and, and whether or not I could be certain about that and firm in my convictions about that. And so over time, I've prepared lessons and, and written articles and, and preached sermons about the subject matter. And so it wasn't that I hadn't given thought to how to be able to explain to my children and raise them up and to be able to know that God truly does exist. But now suddenly the stakes were being raised. It wasn't just some other people's kids that I was teaching in the youth group. It wasn't, it wasn't just some friends or people that I love, but maybe didn't have that blood connection to. But here now, my very own children that are being faced with these types of conversations and not just my very own children, but on our very own street and on our very own doorstep, literally on my doorstep, these conversations were happening. Maybe you're like me and, and you're struggling with the question, how can I, in such a difficult, troublesome world, raise children to be faithful to God? And I understand Brother Owen's, Brother Owen, Owen's point last night about the fact that you know we just need to accept how it is and that's true, very much so, and I agree with that. It doesn't necessarily take away the, the, the intimidation and the worry and concern that we have for our children, at least in some regard. And as we think about those things, though we may wish for one, there, there really is no secret formula to say, if I just give my child this pill, or, or if I do X, Y, and Z just perfectly, that I know for sure that when they leave my home, that they will be faithful to God. Is a sobering thought as I was as I was talking to my co-laborer there and Katie about raising children in the environment that we were living in. And one of the things we were counseling a lady here recently, and, and he mentioned to her, one of the most sobering things is to realize that no matter how perfect we are as parents, every single one of us as a parent is going to raise a sinner. Every single one of our children at some point along the way, as we think about Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, verse 23, that every single one of us are going to raise children who are going to sin. And that is sobering. It is something that you don't want to think about. It's, it's, it's sad, but it's the truth. But what if what is causing this in our children, maybe the, as we look into the church, why are so many young people leaving the church? Maybe we sometimes blame the society around us and the ideology of the day, and we sometimes say, well, if it wasn't this way, and, and if maybe people would just, this nation would turn our eyes back to, to God, if maybe those things would happen, our, not so many of our young people would be leaving the church, but, but what if we were to say this, that, that really maybe the, the root cause of it all is not necessarily what society is doing, but maybe a failure over time of parents to properly make sure that their children's eyes are actively focused on God. When it comes to the constant barrage of, of new ideas and truths from the world, the only secret formula that we really have is to keep the eyes of our children on God unceasingly. We must trust that His Word, that His people, that His presence, His power are truly capable of positively influencing people and our children to follow Him because His Word is powerful. Our God is supreme in quality and in capacity. You might say, well, you know, Jordan, that's really too simplistic 
to just say, just keep our children's eyes focused on God. And maybe it is, but I'd ask, what other option do we really have? What other option is really at our disposal? You know, it's always been God's plan that that God's people have their eyes focused on him continually. As the children of Israel exited out of Egypt, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. But turn your Bibles to the last chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter number 40. I want you to see something with me. Maybe you're like many people and you've, you knew about the fire and the cloud that led the children of Israel, but maybe you've forgotten or maybe you never knew that it wasn't just at Sinai or just leaving Exodus that these individuals began to follow this, this manifestation of God. But as you look at Exodus chapter 40, begin with me in verse number 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now notice, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all of their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till that day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all of their journey. I want us to take notice, especially in verse number 38, of the fact that it wasn't just that Moses saw where the cloud and the fire were going, but it was the fact that everyone in all of Israel saw, all saw the cloud and the fire as it was leading them. And it led them throughout all of their wilderness wanderings. And as you think about that, what was God's purpose in manifesting himself to the people in that way? Was it not to develop in their minds, to teach them that their eyes need to always be on him, to teach them total reliance and total submission, to develop an attitude that says, wherever the Lord leads me, there I will go. It is my task as a father to develop that same attitude in my children, that wherever the Lord leads us as a family, that wherever the Lord leads you as as my son or my daughter, that is where we will go. You know, preachers often strive for, and I, I've always appreciated listening to Brother Vessel, that the idea of theocentric preaching, right? God-centered preaching, and as parents, we need to make sure that we're striving for theocentric parenting. God-centered parenting. That is, surely, as we think about this, we realize how important it is to make sure that all of the time we are keeping the eyes of our children focused upon God. But surely, surely you, I'm not the only one. That, that has this task before me and thinking it is a monumental task. Surely I'm not the only one that feels wholly inadequate to do so. And I recognize that there is, there's a spectrum of individuals in here. Perhaps you've already raised children. Perhaps you don't have any children yet. But regardless, as we think about leading our families, maybe it's just you and your wife now. The principles for us today, though, Brother Denny asked me to, to focus on leading our children through the, the various ideologies of the day, and that's the em- emphasis of our lesson. These principles also serve to be uh, practical for even just a husband and a wife, or even just a grandmother leading their grandchild. And so as we think about these things, I also want to give the disclaimer that as you recognize and here and in the back, right, my children are still very young. And I, the, the jury, as is, is it were, is still out on them in terms of my ability to lead them. And so as I present these things today, I want to make sure that, that you recognize that this is me asking you to join in this challenge with me to, to teach our children and to do these things together as we strive to challenge and encourage one another onward. 
And so for my personal study, here are four challenges, four challenges that I would like to offer my fellow fathers and mothers to join me in as we raise our children. The first two challenges are intended to be geared towards helping us look inward. First, I want us to consider that to, to lead our families through troublesome times, we need to realize, we need to correct our own vision and realize that over the course of history, raising children in troublesome times, especially culturally troublesome times, is not the exception, but the norm. It's not the exception, but the norm. And like last night, Brother Owen said, you know, we need to just accept how it is. And for quite some time, I bemoaned the fact that I'm having to raise children in these days. I don't get to raise children back in the good old days, as as sometimes they're called, right? And as we think about that, I, I lamented it and I was concerned about that. But as I was frustrated, I began to remember that I was not the only father in history that had led and raised children in difficult times. I began to remember Noah raising Shem, Ham, and Japheth in a time where every intent of the thought of man was only evil continually, Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5. Can you imagine raising children in that environment? I dare say it's not terribly far off for us today, but I'm not sure that we would say that every single person is only ever thinking evil continually in every circumstance. How young were Lot's children, I began to wonder. When he was raising them in Sodom and Gomorrah, how soon was he having to have the conversation with them about homosexuality? You know, I never thought that I was going to be able or have to have the conversation with my children about whether or not God existed with my young five-year-old. I thought that would be for down the road, but no, that's not the world we live in. And Lot and his children were having to face some of these things early on in their life, I have no doubt. I, I thought about the Hebrew boys that were dwelling in Egypt under the oppressive regimes of the pharaohs, and I wondered, were fathers having to have conversations about racial oppression with their children at a young age? When Joshua and Caleb returned from spying out the land of Canaan, did they come back and talk to their children and have to answer questions from their children about the murderous and vile people of the land of Canaan? While in Babylonian exile, were conversations happening between parents and their young children about Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous image that was erected and, and commanded that you must bow down and worship it? Surely there were little boys and girls from from Christian homes that were playing in the streets and on the doorsteps of their own homes with Roman little boys and little girls whose fathers and mothers may have been those that persecuted their own, the, the, the children's mothers and fathers as well. And as you think about all of this taking place throughout the course of history, even in these troublesome times, these terribly troublesome times, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they got on the boat with their wives. They climbed safely into the ark. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 23, speaks of the faith of Amram and Jochebed and how it was their faith that helped to eventually, along with God's providential hand, to produce the leaders of the exodus of the children of Israel. It was in troublesome times that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were raised by someone to stand up and say, we will not bow down before this idolatrous image, Nebuchadnezzar. It was in troublesome times that even Lois and Eunice, grandmother and mother, raised a young man, Timothy, who was spoken well of in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 2 of the brethren. And as you think about that, even though the father was not a believer, Timothy's father was not a believer, even though that was the case, still they were able to raise this young man, Timothy. Parents, it is well past time 
that we realize that the very same thing that has been able to take place in the past in raising our children in troublesome times is possible today, that you and I can raise children to be faithful to the Lord. If we'll just but commit to the things that we're going to talk about this morning, it is not impossible. It is not already settled that Satan has won them over. We still have them in our care and we still have a God who truly, if we will help them to see him, is unavoidable and cannot be ignored. And so secondly, I want us next to consider, though, that to lead our families through troublesome times, not only do we need to have a a correct vision that says that I know we can do this, but also my own eyes must be firmly fixed upon God. My own eyes must be fixed firmly upon God. Several months ago, dad came down and, and we inherited, Aaron and I did, Aaron's grandfather's boat. And I've been fixing it up and been enjoying learning how to fish in the coastal waters there in the Gulf of Mexico. And we stay in the inshore waters. We don't go out deep into the Gulf. But, but as we, we're trying to learn how to fish, you know, part of it is going into these areas where these oyster reefs are. And I asked a friend of mine, hey, where's a good place to fish? Because he knew where to go. And he was gracious to give me his fishing spot, right? And, and as, as I asked him, I started looking up online, you know, how to navigate through this area. And there were forums, forums after forums that said, do not go into this area. It's treacherous. There's oysteries all over the place. And I'm thinking, I'm about to take my son, who's, you know, five years old. And my dad, who, as you know, had this heart incident a couple of years ago. And, you know, we're going to be out in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to put a hole in the bottom of my boat and we're going to be stuck out there. And there's sharks and stingrays and jellyfish. And as I'm thinking about all that, can you imagine before I went, what I was doing, I was pouring my eyes over satellite imagery to see if, okay, I need to make sure I'm going to plot out a chart to make sure this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to go slow while I'm going through there. Is it not also the case that when we are trying to help our children navigate through the minefields of life that are being presented to them today, that if our eyes are not first fixed on making sure we know how to plot our course by God's help, that we will never be able to help them plot their course throughout the minefields of life? We'll never be able to help our children navigate those things if we are first have not navigated them ourselves. And the only way we'll ever be able to do that is with our own eyes focused upon God. The question for you this morning, do you truly have a genuine faith? 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 5 and 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 speak both about the idea of a genuine faith as opposed to a counterfeit faith. If, if we were to have uh, an opportunity to observe your faith under a microscope, what would be said about your faith? Are you truly following after God because that's truly the faith that you possess? Or are you doing it because that's what your family has always done? It's just a tradition or it's just because you want to keep the peace in your family. Because if you really want to raise children that are going to follow you to follow after God, then your eyes need to be fixed upon God. My eyes need to be fixed upon God. It's not just about helping our children navigate the minefields, though. It's also helping them see Jesus. As we think about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we think about that, I'm reminded a few years ago, Aaron and I were uh, in the Galveston area. And, and as birds start to migrate back north from south, they, uh, they head for this one particular area called High Island. And these birds start to just fall out of the air because it's this uplift. And they all head for this area because they've been flying across the Gulf of Mexico. They're, they're worn out. And so we went over there. I was excited. You know, my, my background in wildlife. I love wildlife. And we were walking around. And if you've ever been around birders, 
Maybe you've seen the big year. Birders are pretty intense about their their hobby. They're passionate about it. They they have patches all up and down their their vest, and you know they they're whispering, asking, do you, "Do you know what that is? That's making that noise." And and we were just walking, kind of you know enjoying our time. We weren't really that intense about it. And 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 one guy says, "Do you see the whatever bird it was?" And no, we can't see the tiny little bird. You know they're excited about the tiny things, not just the big ones, the the raptors and such. And, and we said, well, "We can't see it." And this man comes up behind Aaron. And he grabs her head and points it in the direction of the bird. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a crude illustration. But is it not the case that as we strive as our children to raise them, to see God, that it, sometimes it takes grabbing their heads and saying, look, see God's beautiful majesty, the creation that's around us. Do not ignore it. Taking every opportunity that is at our disposal to see God's wonderful and marvelous hand, not only in the creation around us, but also in his holy word. By the way, in addition to keeping our eyes on God, our own eyes on God, we also need to keep our own eyes on our family. You know, so many times as fathers, we get distracted by work. We get distracted by chasing the social ladder and our 401k. Or maybe those of you that are preachers dealing so much and investing so much time into our ministry that we neglect our own family. When Jackson was on the boat with me that day, not only did I need to navigate through through the oysteries, but I also need to make sure he wasn't jumping in the salt water, right? And so it is the case that we need to be present as fathers. We need to be near. We can never lead them if we're not accessible to them without, and if we're not present. Consider next as we begin to dig into some practical things, to lead our families through troublesome times, we must find practical ways to keep the eyes of our family on God. We've been saying it all along, right? We need to keep the eyes of our family on God. But how do we do that? The things I'm going to present to you are not, are not revolutionary. They're pretty obvious. But really, as you think about it, if we'll just but do this, we're, we're going to be successful. We can trust in the Lord and what he'll provide to us if we'll just keep our children's eyes on God. First, we need to recognize that we as fathers need to be like our heavenly father. We must be like our Heavenly Father. It's been said by many that oftentimes children view God in the same way that they view their earthly father. Are you crude? Are you harsh? Are you critical? Are you absent? Are you unloving? Are you coarse? Because if you are, your child will likely see God in a very similar way. We are the light of the world, and we are the city that is set upon a hill. We ought to be that to the world. We're also to be that to our children, that they may see God living in us and that they might, by our lives, glorify their Father which is in heaven also in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'd ask you, do you exhibit those qualities to your children? Do you tell your children that you love them? Are you joyous despite various frustrations? Are you a peacemaker during times of family conflict? Are you long-suffering when your children fail? Because they will. Are you kind in speaking to your family? Are you faithful to your God and your children's mother? Are you gentle when your children are disappointed? Are you self-controlled when you are upset? Or do you fly off the handle? This is the fruit of God's Spirit, and we are demonstrating in many ways to our children who our God is. But not only that, we also need to make sure that we teach about our Heavenly Father. It's so simple, right? It, it just seems kind of silly to say something like that, but we need to realize that teaching our children about our Heavenly Father cannot be done by proxy. 
It cannot be done just simply by sending them to youth group functions. It cannot be done by dropping them off at Bible classes. It cannot be done by sending them to Peach Valley in the summer. Though I believe in the work that's being done there, the camp that's happening, it can't be done by proxy. Our children need it, not just from mom, but from you, dad. Not just from mom, but from you. They need it daily. They need it consistently when they sit down in the house and when they walk by the way and when they lie down and when you rise up, Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 7. Are we as eager to teach them how to throw a ball as we are to teach them about our God? Are we as eager to introduce them to them the marvelous love of Jesus as we are to introduce them to fishing or Star Wars or any other number of things that we enjoy that are outside of the purview of Scripture? Because if we are not as passionate about those things, our children will pick up on it. We also need to make sure that we worship our Father in our personal homes. I recognize Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. We talk about the importance of making sure that we do not forsake the assembly. And the corporate worship assembly certainly is important. It is paramount. It is crucial to saying to our children that God is important to us. We will not miss worship services for any number of things. However, if the only time that we are worshiping with our family is within the walls of the church building, we are shortchanging them. When was the last time that you said, the words of the psalmist, Psalm 95, verse number 6. And I don't mean you literally have to say these exact words to them, but, oh, let us come, oh, come and let us worship and bow down before the Lord our Maker. Let us kneel before Him. When's the last time you said that to our children? I remember a few years ago, Dad and I hiking to a frozen dream lake up in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I was an adult at this time, and he said, let's pray. And I'll never forget the prayer that he prayed while we're standing there before this majestic mountain scene. You know, most people say, let's just move on and see the next site. But no, he wanted to pray. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But as we think about that, many have used the term family worship to describe what should be taking place within the home. The idea is that the whole family sits down together on a regular scheduled basis to worship God. It's interesting in the lives of my own children, I've noticed that for whatever reason, they are more engaged in times that are outside of the corporate worship assembly and learning about God than they are maybe sitting in the pew in the auditorium, not to negate or or to, to say that those things are less important. But as we sit around a campfire and we sing with, with other young families from church, as we, as we have our evening Bible time, they're engaged and they're listening and learning. And for whatever reason, they are actually, it seems at that moment, soaking those things in. Now, that's not to say, again, that they don't learn things in the corporate worship assembly because the Bible verses that they have at night before bed, the memory verses that they, I always get tapped on, Dad, he said this, Dad, he said that. They're listening. But as you think about these things, our children should, should trust us more than anyone and anything else in the world. And so when they see us taking the initiative to worship God in our own homes, it's going to leave an indelible impression upon them. Next, fathers, we must speak of the blessings from our Father. Speak of the blessings from our Father. Our children will recognize when there is a disconnect between our family worship time and regular worship time. If the name of God is only used when teaching about Him or worshiping Him, we may be unintentionally suggesting to them that really the only time that God has thought about is during times of regular routine worship. Do we speak about Him in regular, average conversations? Do we point Him out in times where maybe we don't normally think about Him? But not only just that, but do we think about pointing out to them how God has been faithful to us and blessed us in the past? 
You think about the purpose of the Passover feast in Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. That when the children of Israel's children would ask them, what do these things mean? They could tell them that this was what God did for us as he delivered us from Egypt. He protected us. He passed over us. After safely crossing the Jordan and thinking about what happened in that particular situation, that Joshua commanded 12 stones to be gathered together so that they, when their children asked them in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Parents could tell their children of God's protection. Fathers, do you tell your children, leaving out maybe some specific details about how you were converted to Christ? Do you talk to them about the, the life that you had before and how it was difficult, but then as you, can, as you changed your life and began to follow Christ, that things began to work out for the good? Not to say that you're not going to endure persecution, but that the Christian life is truly the best life to live. And that in your time as a Christian, you have been like the psalmist in Psalm 37 and verse number 25, that I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread, that God will take care of us. But not only the blessings of the past, but also the blessings of the present. When was the last time that you spoke of God's blessings that are found in the church to your children? Do you speak of the wonderful elders and Bible class teachers to them? Do you encourage them about the things that they're seeing within the church? Or do they only ever hear negative conversations taking place about those things? Do you tell your children that you look at them as a blessing from God? Do you see them as Psalm 127 verse number five says as a heritage from the Lord? Or do they feel as though, do you communicate to them, maybe not so many words, that they are an imposition, that they are a, 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 an issue in your life that causes you to have to change your schedule and deal with things that are, are problematic for you? Or do they know that you truly look at them as though they're a blessing from God? Do you also, though, acknowledge not only the blessings of the past and the present, but also the blessings of the promised future? Is heaven a place that you speak of in earnest anticipation? Or is it just a consolation prize? Is death regarded as a victory or as an enemy? Philippians 1, 21 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. Because our children, again, will pick up on these things. The blessings of God, past, present, and future, should be ever present on our lips. Consider next that we also need to talk to our fathers in the presence of our children, not just at the building. Kind of connected back to what we said about worshiping our father in the presence of our children with our family. But I will never forget, it's forever burned in my mind the time that I came around the corner into my parents' bedroom and I saw my dad kneeling on the ground, his face nearly on the floor, audibly praying out loud to God when no one else was around because his sister had just gone to the hospital with a heart event. And, and I'll never forget that. It left that indelible mark on my mind. And even children understand that you don't do something unless you truly believe in it. Have your children witnessed you praying, not only in front of the congregation, not only at the meal table when it's expected, but also at times that are unexpected? Are your prayers repetitive, rehearsed? Are they prayers that, that are obviously intentional? Or are they prayers that are just uttered because you have to? Perhaps I would suggest this afternoon that maybe the greatest evidence to our children of our faith in God is the fact that we will pray to Him when no one else is looking. Because I, I, I would suggest there are some ulterior motives that, that could be found for not sinning 
Maybe you, maybe you don't uh, miss worship because you don't want to avoid the call from the elders. Or, or maybe, maybe you don't steal from the, the cash register because you don't want to lose your job. Or maybe you don't cheat on your spouse because you don't want to lose time with your family. And so you, you avoid doing the wrong things, not for the right reason, just but because you don't want to deal with the consequences. But I would ask you, when you think about praying, unless a man is truly a man of God, I would suggest he's going to have a really hard time praying when no one else is looking. Because it's one thing that unless he truly believes in its power, he probably will not do it when no one else is around. And our children will pick up on that. They will notice. They will understand the disconnect. And finally, from this section, we must discipline the way that our Father expects us to. As you think about Proverbs chapter 23, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul. The phrase, this hurts me more than it hurts you, cannot be understood in its entirety until perhaps you, as a father, have to discipline your child in a, in a spanking type of way, perhaps. But if we neglect to use the various forms of biblical discipline and point our children to see that God also disciplines those whom he loves, they perhaps will not understand the point of that discipline. Finally, this afternoon, I want us to consider that in order to lead our families through troublesome times, we must be cautious of things that take our family's eyes off of God. We must be cautious of things that take our family's eyes off of God. You know, before the children of Israel entered the land of promise, and during the time when they were still following the pillar of cloud and fire, God very specifically stated that they were forbidden from marrying the inhabitants of the land. God said, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse number 4. This imagery is so relevant for what we're talking about today. And it's, it is not a, a lesson that, that interracial marriage is not uh, allowed by God today, but in that particular moment for God's nation, the nation of Israel, he had this specific command. But the idea, the, the point of this lesson is that if we do not prevent our children from having their eyes focused upon things that take their eyes off of God and away from God, then they will very easily be led astray. We think about all the times throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament where people's eyes stopped following God. You think about Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. Eve saw the tree that it was good for food. And so she took her eyes off of God and what he had said and looked at something else and she fell. Lot's eyes, Lot's wife's eyes were turned from the Lord's rescue when she looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah. You think about Achan, the fact that he saw among the spoil many things that took his eyes off of God, Joshua 7, verse 21. You think about David's eyes and how his eyes were turned from the Lord when he saw Bathsheba bathing upon the rooftop. Samson's eyes were turned from the Lord when he saw Bathsheba, or when he saw Delilah the prostitute. Peter's eyes into the New Testament. You think about Matthew chapter 14 and verse number 30, that as he's walking on the, the, the Sea of Galilee, his eyes, no doubt, at some point were fixed upon Jesus as he begins to walk towards him upon that water. But what does he see? He looks around and he sees the wind, the text says. And he begins to sink. What are we placing before the eyes of our children that may be causing them to turn their eyes from God? 
I'm not just talking about the screen time and, and social media accounts and, and things of that nature and things that might reveal to them inappropriate images and such. But not only that, our athletics or academic pursuits also taking our eyes, our children's eyes off of God. It's not to suggest that our children can't participate in these things. Not to suggest that they can't play sports or, or learn musical instruments, excel in academics, but how often do we spend so much of our children's young years, you know, taking them to Bible classes as early as preschool and, and the nursery and helping them to learn Bible verses, but then once middle school and high school comes around and all these opportunities for extracurricular activities are available to them, then all of a sudden we start to allow those things to be the forefront of their focus instead of learning about God and keeping their eyes focused upon Him. Again, as you think about these things, during those times, I must strive to constantly refocus their eyes to be upon God so that while they're even involved in those activities, they are reminded that while they're doing those things, they are trying to bring glory to God using that avenue. But if I allow those activities to become the reason that my children miss worship, both corporate and the family worship that we talked about, or if I allow those activities to become my children's source of joy, or if they cause my child to neglect time in the scriptures, or if they cause my child to be more like the world and less like God, then I need to recognize that I have failed as a father to keep the eyes of my children upon God. As we close, I want us to consider this. We have such a great challenge before us. It's a mighty task to have the blessing of pointing the eyes of our children of God. It's not a, a, a weighty task in the sense that it's, it's a burden, that it's a load, that it's an imposition, but it is a blessing as you think about Psalm 127 and verse number 4. The fact that as we have these children that are a heritage from the Lord, it's as though we have these arrows, like a mighty man of valor, of war, has these arrows. These children are arrows in our hands that we have to be able to stand and to raise them up as in individuals that begin to fight against the wiles of Satan, that are able to be on our side, the Lord's side, the Lord's army, that we are able to add one more individual to the Lord's cause. <clears throat> Though daunting, may we bravely look at these troublesome times as an opportunity to say to the world that our God is greater. As we close, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine for just a moment that as it should be, and I recognize that this isn't always the case, but as it should be, it's likely that you as a parent, as a father or mother, will leave this life before your child that you will pass away before them. And I want you to picture yourself waiting upon them in paradise as you await their arrival someday. And I don't know that it's for sure going to be like this. I understand that. But for illustration's sake, think about this. All these years, you're waiting for them to come, and they finally arrive, and you see them coming afar off, if you will, walking into this place of rest, and you say, you know, it's like when we've gone to the mountains and we say, son, daughter, look at that majestic thing up there. Look at how grand or look at that wonderful animal that God created. See the beauty of the world around us. But imagine being in heaven on that great eternal blissful day and your child, your, your son, your daughter walks through those gates and, and you say, come here, son, come here. I've got something I want to show you. And you turn and you say, look, there is our God. There's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But I would suggest to you, if we are not pointing the eyes of our children to Him right now, 
We're not going to have that opportunity to do so in eternity. And so may we ever strive as fathers, as mothers, to point the eyes of our children to God so that we can help them to be what God has called them to be. Amen. Lord, thank you for that reminder and that challenge. Uh, Certainly something that should hit us all right in the heart and uh, should cause us to reevaluate, reassess, and recommit to that calling that God has given us with our children or maybe our grandchildren or the other children in the congregation that we can have an influence over and, and help them. I didn't purposely didn't mention uh, that Jordan is John's son, uh, John and Carla's son, not to not to take away from that relationship. But Jordan stands on his own two feet and does his own work, regardless of who his family is. But I know um, when you hear him speak of his childhood, uh, they were raised to be able to raise their children this way. And so I'm thankful for that. Uh, Jordan's also an accomplished photographer. I meant to mention that, had it written down and didn't say that. And so uh, I know he probably wouldn't wouldn't talk about it himself, but ask him about it. Very, very tre- tremendous talent and eye for, for those things and to reveal even more of God's beauty in a, in a, in a very majestic way. And we're thankful for that. Um, he did mention one thing about the hole in the boat. And that made me think um, that one of these days we need to do it when you guys are both in town, but not the bottom of the boat with the bottom of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you've ever heard them sing it, it's uh you're missing out on something great in life, just to let you know. Um, Jordan, we're glad that you guys are here. Thankful for the lesson. Uh, we're going to have a prayer just quickly, and then we'll be dismissed. There will be a session in here, and just one other session, I believe, in the auditorium, just two at, at a time this afternoon, so make sure you check the schedule out. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the ability and privilege to call you our Father and to live in your grace and in the umbrella of your mercy. Father, we're thankful for the future generations that you've entrusted to our care. And Father, we're thankful for Jordan and for his powerful proclamation of your word and for his his reminder for us and to us of what we should be doing. Father, we're thankful that you allow us to turn our face to you and seek you and to know you. And Father, we pray that we would point everyone that we know to you, but especially those little ones entrusted to our care. May we be better at it. May we be more diligent to accomplish it after today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, man. Thank you. Great. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you, brother. A little rough with trying to get lunch in there. Yeah. I always feel this way. Pleasure traveling. I have. 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 I